Welcome to the first episode of the Cornell Policy Review podcast. My name is Harrison Speck, and I am the senior content editor at The Review. This podcast will explore a variety of issues through interviews with figures from around the world. In this episode, associate editor Arpit Chattervedi interviews Almas Heder about a slew of topics, including her community organizing, the current political and societal struggles of the LGBTQ community, minority alliances, activism, mock checkpoints in Washington, D.C., and much more. So hi, I'm in conversation with Almas Heather, and uh, she's a community worker and storyteller. She's a second-generation American uh, originating from Pakistan. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Almas, for taking time out and talking to Cornell Policy Review. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited for this conversation. So Almas, can you uh, tell us about uh, the community-level work that you do and how it impacts people? Yeah, so I first became politicized not in college or even before college. It was while I was doing a Fulbright in Jordan, the year after I had graduated. And for me, this was the first time where I really understood what my privilege was, Mm -hmm. even as someone who's coming from a working class, Pakistani, Shia background, where my parents had to save a lot and also deconstruct a lot of their internalized sexism to support me to complete my education in a different state um, and then encourage me and support me in pursuing a Fulbright abroad. So in Jordan, I had the privilege of having an American passport. I looked like everyone in that country. Um, I had access to the wealthier parts of town, Mm -hmm. um, to wealthier spaces because I was part of the expat community, which is like the immigrant wealthy community, right. uh, which for me, it was this politicization of understanding what it meant to be in a position of power and working with Palestinian descendants of Palestinian refugees in Jordan and what it was like to be completely disenfranchised, where they didn't have access to government positions. They didn't have access to great any kind of great education that could set them up for a strong future. Mm-hmm. So there was exposures to other communities' um, experience with power dynamics I wasn't completely aware of um, and really had me reflecting on what my own identities were and my own relation to power in the U.S. So I ended up moving back to Los Angeles, um, outside of Los Angeles, actually, Ontario, California, where my parents are now and decided to get more involved with my local South Asian Muslim community. And this was also around the time where I was understanding more and more that I am queer. Mm -hmm. And what does it mean to be queer? Not just in terms of who I am building relationships with, but what does it mean to be queer in a time where that isn't supported on a federal level um, and isn't spoken of in my local community? So how very much like my identities, more and more understanding that this is a time to be political and had always been a time to be political. So I got involved with the South Asian Network, um, which I later went to be a civil rights advocate for them, doing a lot of case management within the South Asian community around housing rights, immigration rights, employment rights, and also doing a lot of work around domestic violence, Mm -hmm. healthcare access. And I also got involved with Satrang, which is the local South Asian queer and trans organization over there, doing a lot of work around, now what is the politicization of the queer and trans community in a time where we can't just fight for marriage equality when that's not what we 
arguably should have ever been fighting for when the greater issues are around survival of bullying on housing, on employment. Uh Those are the things that actually affect our communities on a daily basis. Um, And the most vulnerable in our communities, particularly trans women, those are the ones who are most affected um, by these racist and problematic policies that exist. Mm -hmm. So my politicization at an early state was already quote unquote radical. And I seek to keep it that way by continuing to educate myself and take into accountability when I need to learn more and haven't done that work. And to what extent do you think that uh, grassroots level organizations or mid-level or even larger nonprofits uh, can contribute to this cause? And to what level do they actually contribute right now? Having worked at a nonprofit and even been on the board of some, what I find that nonprofits have the most difficulty with is funding. Because if they are given a grant, they have certain objectives that they're also supposed to be meeting. And at times that might be just the most politically um, fashionable to pursue. So with the example of the queer and trans rights movement, the most fashionable thing was marriage equality Mm -hmm. because that got people really emotional and empathetic on a level where non-queer and trans people felt like they could sympathize with. And unfortunately, that's not where the need is. The need is around police brutality. It's around surveillance. It's around immigration. But those are not things that queer and trans organizations, people who fund them, Mm -hmm. are interested in funding because oftentimes the people with the wealth have um, the most access to foundations. Those people are not feeling the impact of what it's like for a black trans woman on a daily basis. So the issues of focus get skewed because of the lack of funding. Right. And so therefore the most marginalized continue to be the most disenfranchised and continue to be told that not yet, like we're going to win marriage equality and then we'll get to surveillance Uh when that's not what our priority should be. You know, we, we were at a conference right now for the South Asian millennial conference and Lakshmi who works for salt just did a panel around building multi-ethnic movements. And the piece that everyone's working on right now is how to use the black lives matter six point platform Mm -hmm. as a way for all organizations and all people to commit to working towards reparations, working towards ending state surveillance, um, working towards equal access for housing and employment, like all these different platforms that if they are met for the Black community will be met for every other community. So if our nonprofits and other organizations can commit to uplifting the most marginalized, centering the most marginalized and what those needs are, naturally everyone else, will their needs will be met as well. And it's just a matter of figuring out how to get funders and donors to empathize with that mission as well. Uh Because it is a breaking down of having people who might not have had ever had the experience of having to live off the street um, to not be able to get a job because of the way they look, um, to be denied entry into the U.S. because they come from a country that for all... I mean, like I'm referring to the Muslim ban here, you know, it's these are countries that the U.S. is at war with and essentially being told that you we're going to bomb your country 
but you can't come to ours for refuge. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are queer and trans people as well. These end up being undocumented people as well. So understanding how intersectional our identities are Mm -hmm. um, and having that at the center of their vision, their mission, and their strategic work that they do. And do you think that such a uh, policy, such a uh, immigration policy also affects the queer transgender people in a more adverse manner than the rest of the population? I don't want to say that, you know, queer and trans people feel the most oppressed or experience the most oppression Mm -hmm. um, because every single community experiences oppression and violence in different ways. So all I can say based off of my experiences is the knowledge that queer and trans people are already profiled and detained. They can be profiled and detained because they're black and brown just walking down the street. You know, they can be shot just for being black and brown, particularly being black and just walking down the street. And then after, if they survive being stopped by police, they still run the risk of being misgendered, being incarcerated, and put in a prison where they would be with a gender that is not one that they identify with. They would be denied access to health care that is not, that is survival, Mm -hmm. but be told that this is cosmetic Mm -hmm. um, or like, we just don't believe in it out of religion. Like, right. my religion doesn't recognize your kind, so right. we are going to deny access to you. So there is a unique set of violence that queer and trans people specifically will face mm-hmm. under Trump's administration, under policies like those that are um, coming out of the White House and have been coming out of the White House mm-hmm. um, in the U.S. government for years. Mm-hmm. And uh, how much do you think is the role of political leadership coming from minority groups in uh, making the situation better? I think it's a tough answer because I work with a lot of community organizers um, and also have worked with Congress people. um, And I see the value in having political representation However, I do not believe that political representation on its own or even as the leader Mm -hmm. will be what gains us our freedom. What will lead toward our liberation as all people of color is us rising up and not as a strategy if some folks want to work with a system that exists as it is now. Great. What are the limitations of that system? The limitation of that system is you're constantly trying to reform a system that was never meant for us. You look at what Trump's doing right now with the ban, and, you know, I'm going to fix that, Trump's administration, because Trump is not acting alone. But with the ban, it's just going from one judge to the other, and then, you know, just both sides going back and forth on it. That takes a tremendous amount of energy, and it's all working within a system that elected someone like him mm-hmm. and did nothing to stop that. Mm-hmm. They just it let it happen because that's the way the natural system worked. The Electoral College didn't step up. Like Congress folks did not step up. Our system did not stop this from happening. It enabled it. Mm-hmm. So in my opinion, true liberation comes from moving away from the system completely mm-hmm. and understanding that another world can exist. Uh-huh. An example I have been using is 
looking at the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe and the work that they're doing around Dakota Access Pipeline. The U.S. is built on the labor and the backs of Black people who were enslaved and brought here and on the genocide of the First Nations people. Mm-hmm. This is their land, and we are settlers on their land and are complicit in this as well, in this violence as well. And despite all the legislation, the trail of tears, the reservations, and health care access, education access, all of these things that First Nation people have been working against, they're surviving, and they are still fighting the system. And Dakota Access, the, um, the camp that they have over there, they have created a system that operates outside of the U.S. system where they are able to provide legal support to anyone who is in need of it, who gets arrested. They are able to provide not just health care in terms of when the cops are shooting them, peaceful protesters shooting them and tear gassing them. They can provide that health care, but they also provide PTSD health care and mm-hmm. mental health care. So understanding that Healthcare comes in a number of ways and is necessary in a number of ways. There's food for everyone who comes to the camp. There is room to board for everyone who comes to that camp. Granted, they have to find it and organize it. There's a way to build community that exists outside of a system told to, we need money to give you legal counsel. We need money to give you a room. We need money to give you healthcare access. There is a way to build a community in a world where everyone has access to what they need. Uh And it's not built off of capitalism. It's not built off of using human beings Uh for political gain. And the example also with Standing Rock Sioux Tribe is that they built that camp by centering the most marginalized within their community, which meant that at all times they were thinking about access and safety and well-being of two-spirit, queer and trans, undocumented people. So by centering the most marginalized, they were able to help everyone in that camp. And that is a model we can all work towards, not just on our campuses, in our classrooms, in our political system, if we decide to have a political system in this new world of ours. Well, I think that's a very unique model that you're talking about. Let's say, for example, you were talking about, uh, you know, creating this model on our campuses and our universities, etc. How, how do you uh, imagine that model should work? And what can one actually do to build that model, for example, on a university campus? I think the South Asian alliance that brought us here is a fantastic example because it's a way of not just engaging each other based off of our South Asian identities, but it's also bringing this political aspect that it is incredible privilege to not be political at this time because our identities are under attack. And it's politicizing youth. I mean, I'm probably still within the age bracket of millennial, but I struggle with, um, you know, social media apps sometimes. Like I'm, Twitter is above (laughs) me. So there's like more knowledge and awareness of just technology, of pushing back on ideas that we've had just a few generations above and challenging us. So constantly keeping us aware and um, checking us to ensure that we do center the most marginalized as we get a stronger understanding of gender, of sexual orientation, of caste, of colorism, all these things. Um, Youth are really, youth are literally the future. 
Right. And so by working on our campuses, I think it's important to, as I said, have that step-by-step approach. We need to work first within our own affinity group. Mm-hmm. And as South Asians challenge what internalized racism we have, internalized Islamophobia, internalized sexism, internalized casteism, internalized homophobia, transphobia, all of it, work on all of that, and then build alliances with other groups on campus that align with our political values. Like find your local Black Lives Matter chapter, build an East Asian solidarity group with that as well. Like find who your allies are of other minority groups and build with them. Mm -hmm. Because in that way, you've already created a local political center on your campus where you can get funding. You can lobby your administrators to ensure that undocumented people are supported at Yale. That, you know, we don't disclose the immigration status Uh as an administration Uh of any of our students. When we are told that a speaker is invited who is homophobic and racist, that we are not going to support that person coming to our campus because this is a space that values their people of color, that values black and brown people. And oftentimes universities uh, claim to be free speech zones, but there is a remarkable difference that people fail to see between free speech and hate speech. Mm-hmm. And what the impact of that can be on students of color not feeling safe on campus. Um, and also that literally they, their physical being is threatened. Right. Um, so all that to go back to saying that build with other affinity groups on campus, but at the same time, do not live in the bubble of academic circles. There are South Asian workers literally across the street from here working in restaurants, working in hotels, um, driving taxis, working in medical fields as attorneys right here. How can we, how can you, (laughs) you know, work to build relationships with South Asian workers Mm -hmm. um, of all uh, classes, of all professions? Mm -hmm. So in that way, when we need to be mobilized, we can be mobilized and not just come out in support of, things that immediately affect our South Asian community, but also show up for the Black community, for the Latino community, for the queer and trans community, for every community. So we all know that we have each other's backs when shit goes down. Right. (laughs) And uh, you were talking about this project uh, when you would stop people and ask them some questions. Could you uh, tell us more about that? Yeah. So when I was on the board of the National Queer Asian Pacific Islander Alliance, I was still living in D.C., and it was around the time when the 15th anniversary of 9-11 was coming around. Uh And we wanted to have an action that really would engage people um, and at the same time invite them to understand what our experience is as specifically queer and trans South Asian Pacific Islander, East Asian, Southeast Asian people. And what we decided to do was build mock checkpoints throughout the city. And we did, I believe, six of them. Um, And we did it in very busy areas, DuPont Circle, U Street. Um, I'm already forgetting because I haven't lived there. Um, Abner's Morgan was another one. What would these checkpoints look like? Yeah, so the checkpoints looked like, uh, it looked like essentially a pipe doorway Uh that people had to go through and... Like we got CBC pipe from Home Depot and then we put orange 
um, electrical tape around it. So it looked like it was like a cone, like a white and orange cone. So there was like this doorway people had to go through. And we would have people standing a few feet in front of it and a few feet behind it with signs saying checkpoint ahead. Mm -hmm. And it would look like it was like, you know, road construction ahead signs. So getting people to when they're first coming across this to be like, whoa, like what's happening around here? Um, And then seeing their their engagement, approaching them and saying, do you want to, because we need to have their consent to, do you want to participate in this action that we're doing around the anniversary of Mm 9-11? And then some would say yes, some would say no. And regardless, we would find a way to engage them of what that experience is like to go through something similar to TSA where you are, passing through a doorway, told to, you know, get rid of your backpack. Why are you carrying a backpack? What's in that backpack? Where are you coming from? Oh, you're from North Carolina. Like, where in North Carolina? Asheville. You know, we've heard about a lot of terrorist activity coming out of Asheville. Like, are you involved with any of that? Like, what student organizations are you a part of? Really, like, getting people to understand that based off of where they're from, the way they look like, we even profiled them for speaking English and mm-hmm. said, hey, like, what's that language you're speaking? Or what's your name, John? Like, oh, that's a very common name on our list of people to stop. Right. Um, they seem to have terrorist activity. Just getting them to understand that profiling is so arbitrary. Mm-hmm. They can do it just for having a beard, for having a backpack, for wearing a hoodie. There are just so many ways that police stop the law enforcement and our government system really work to just disenfranchise us and have us in a state of fear constantly Mm -hmm. and unable to just simply walk through a street without being stopped and told that, Hey, you look suspicious. So we had this conversation with over a hundred people throughout the day in the six different places. And it's probably even more than a hundred. It's just like, I'm going off of what my numbers were. And I was in DuPont circle um, right next to like a farmer's market. Uh So then everyone who was working at the different checkpoints moved to 14th and U Street, which is one of the most busiest intersections in Washington, D.C., and we proceeded to shut it down. And that was really powerful because it was one led by queer and trans people of color. It was on the anniversary of 9-11 where I personally experienced a great deal of physical and verbal harassment as a child Um, when 9-11 happened. Mm -hmm. So to be out on the streets on 9-11, which is typically a day for me to just stay at home and Mm -hmm. find peace as much as I can, it was simultaneously terrifying and empowering. And that was the same experience for a lot of people who came through in support of that action that day. And it also brought a lot of visibility to our community where you know, there, you don't really see too many marches and rallies from Muslims happening on 9-11 because of the fear of how we will be profiled of, oh, look right. at those angry Muslims. Like, they're probably angry that they didn't kill enough of us when the reality is, is that we are fearful for our lives because right. of the stereotypes that exist around Muslims, um, not just after 9-11, but the Islamophobia that predates that. Mm-hmm. The Islamophobia has existed in different waves, different policies like the Iranian hostage crisis, the Oklahoma City bombing. All these things had Islamophobic policies that were built out of it Mm -hmm. and simultaneously had nothing to do with Muslims. Yeah. And how do you think uh, protesting as a way of uh, political tool or marching on the roads, how much and to what extent does it affect public policy? 
think you can see that protest has not just, um, I want to start with protest for people mm-hmm. um, can have an amazing effect on our mental health because it helps us not just shout out the injustices that we're facing and experiencing, but also allows us to build community with each other. My first, the, my, the first protest my, bro, my father went to was the day after Trump's um, winning the election. And we were one of over 10,000 people in Los Angeles marching the street. And my dad was proud. Like he had a I'm Muslim and proud protest sign. And he was just so happy to see other people there supporting him as a immigrant from Pakistan who has worked for the majority of his life at fast food restaurants and Home Depot. So someone who spends majority of their day on their feet decided to spend the whole day on their feet marching the streets of Los Angeles and felt supported by other people and validated that no matter what sacrifices I made to come to this country and the people who are now in positions of power who want to not just continue bombing the country I'm from, but now attack me even more at home, in my home, um, there are people still who support me and have my back. So I think protests can be really powerful as a community building tool. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of putting political pressure, I think political pressure looks like a lot of different ways, not just in having lobbying access, mm-hmm. but also media can sway the way the political uh, climate is. Getting a lot of media attention from a protest mm-hmm. is a way to gain that political power. Um, and protests can also lead to action where, you know, you look at Occupy Mm -hmm. as a movement and it it was very powerful, very anti-capitalistic. It seemed like there was a lot of momentum, but it all didn't work out because there wasn't, um, any structure in place afterwards. You look at Black Lives Matter, there was very much similar like movements everywhere and they've built an incredible system where there are demands, where there is, Um, a specific agenda that they have that will work towards the liberation of not just black people, but all people of color. And so there's a way for protests to build political power. Now, if, you know, bringing it back to, if we follow these Black Lives Matter guidelines of what the demands are, all organizations, all affinity groups, regardless of whether it's reproductive rights, whether it's mental health, whether it's immigration, housing, employment, if we can adopt these platforms, we can build movements based off of our protests, based off of our teachings, um, based off of providing food and legal support for our community and people who are continuing to protest. We can build movements and worlds out of protests. Right. And uh, I think just out of that, my last question would be, why do you think that some movements or some organizations like Black Lives Matter, they become successful while others, they just fade away? That's a great question. And I can't say with my limited years, I can say completely what, um, why that might be. But I think it's important to remain relevant mm-hmm. because people come out on the streets mm-hmm. Um, for a reason. Right. And in that moment, in that time, it might 
like for right now, it's we feel completely attacked. You know, the women's march that happened, actually the women's march is a great example yeah. where there was not just a march in Washington, D.C., but there were also local chapters that were marching. Some had stronger turnouts mm-hmm. than others, and some will completely fade into nothing. It was still wait to see if the women's march will fade into nothing because it really is important not just to bring out one-time protesters who felt like, as women, they were targeted. But there are trans women who continue to feel targeted. There are black women, brown women, who continue to feel targeted. There are undocumented women who continue to feel targeted and have felt targeted before this. There are sex workers that continue to feel targeted. So how do you build a movement that, and a structure that will not center, again, the the most privileged, but rather the most marginalized within our community and build movements from that. Uh-huh. I think the reason why Black Lives Matter is so successful is because it comes at its root created by three queer black women right. who have radical understandings of what it means to build movements and have also radical local movements that they have been a part of. Um, I'm from Los Angeles, and there are moments that I've intersected paths with Patrice Coulors, who's one of the founders, amazing work with Dignity and Power Now, amazing artist, Mm -hmm. um, and has the amazing ability to bring people together despite having, despite it being multiple different identities. Um, So I think that a movement to continue to exist has to continue to be intersectional and continue to uplift the most marginalized and work towards uplifting the most marginalized. Because otherwise, the victories that are achieved are very superficial. Marriage equality is incredibly superficial because that has done nothing for me as a queer Muslim from Pakistan or with ancestry from Pakistan. Um, What I need right now is just a complete end to state surveillance, to state violence, um, to prisons, to capitalism. Like, that's what I need an end to in order to survive in this country and in this world. But... You know, most movements that die out are not working towards that. They're working towards a goal that will only benefit the Mm -hmm. minority, Mm -hmm. whereas the majority are left out. Thanks for listening to the first episode of the Cornell Policy Review podcast. And a special thanks to Almas Heder for her insights. Stay tuned for more episodes in the near future. In the meantime, you can visit our website for a wealth of policy analysis pieces by our staff and a diverse set of contributors. Some recent topics include Chile's Lobbying Act of 2014 and the UK's international role post-Brexit. Follow us on social media for our latest articles. And thanks again for listening.